I'm Chris, and this is my Writing Table Podcast, where we talk to authors and other creatives about the writing world and what it takes to create the books that we love to read. Ready? Pull up a chair, and let's begin. Graduating from the SI Newhouse School of Public Communications at Syracuse University and spending many years as an advertising creative director and copywriter in New York City, Lisa Rowe accepted the tougher job of stay-at-home mom and turned to writing fiction, mostly to entertain her kids, but then to tell her own stories. A classic firstborn, a reluctant empty nester, and a Dr. Doolittle wannabe. Lisa lives in New Jersey with her husband and three incorrigible dogs. Welcome, Lisa. Hi, Chris. How are you? I'm great. I just finished reading your book. I enjoyed it so much. Your main character, Jenny, is funny, vulnerable, and so relatable. Tell us about your debut, Welcome to the Neighborhood. My new book, Welcome to the Neighborhood, is a story about a formerly single mom and struggling artist named Jenny, who finds out that a second chance at love also gives her an opportunity to give her 11-year-old daughter, Harry, everything that she never could. When she moves into the home of her new husband, Jeff, who lives in an upscale neighborhood in New Jersey. She's excited that now her daughter will be able to have everything she never could, you know, a big house, a big backyard, kids on the street, a great school system. And then she meets the neighbors and suddenly things are not going to be as easy as they seem. Kathleen West says of your debut, a heartfelt and endearing story about keeping one's feet firmly planted while simultaneously dreaming big. What did you hope to accomplish when you sat down to write Welcome to the Neighborhood? Well, I had two main goals. One was to write a mom-com, which is a new genre that I have to say I thought I made up, but apparently I didn't. So when I say mom-com, let me just talk for a second about what a mom-com is, and then that will give you an answer to your question. So to me, a mom-com is a funny but honest story about motherhood and parenting. And when I say honest, what I mean by that is that moms are all human. Parenting doesn't come with a instruction manual. So we are constantly sort of feeling our way and finding things out and making mistakes. And that's what I wanted to really touch on. I wanted to write a book about motherhood where we have the greatest intentions for our children, but sometimes in us trying to get there, we fumble along the way. And that's who I wanted Ginny to be because Ginny has an idea of what she thinks her daughter should have. It may not necessarily be what her daughter needs. Let's put it that way. That was my number one goal. I wanted to write a mother-daughter love story. And that's what this is between Harry and Ginny. My other goal was that I wanted to talk about what it was like to be basically the new girl in town. And that was an inspiration for me because I have moved around so many times in my life. And I have always been the new girl in town trying to break into, you know, an existing social circle new for me. And it's not always easy, depending on what stage of your life you're at. If you're a kid, if you're an adult, you know, there's challenges to it. And I wanted to explore those challenges. But what I wanted to do was create a situation that was going to, you know, make it really tough for my character. I added in this element of these sort of real housewife type wannabes, because A, they do exist. You know, yes, they do. <laughs> they absolutely exist. And, you know, everybody loves a bad behaving mom. That part was fun for me. Well, I wanted to remark on two things that I noticed. One, I love it when you show the good side of the bad yeah. guy. And I think you did that really well. The bossy PTA moms, you did a great job of showing us the other side of what she had to offer. Like 
what that person does in terms of the workload for the school and the kids and what that person's capable of doing interpersonally. The other thing I thought was really interesting, when we set out to parent, we say, this is how we're going to raise our kids. And they're not going to have this until they're this age. And what happens is they go to school and they get around other kids. And then those hard and fast rules that we set kind of loosen. And in Jenny's case, she was like, Harry's going to have all these things, but within reason, it kind of showed that there's only so much control you have that often the other children are the influence, not the parents as much as we try. I think it's really important to look at a character from sort of like behind their eyes as well. Because, you know, nobody is born mean and nobody is born, you know, nasty. And there are reasons why these things happen to people all along their life. And for my characters, things happen to them that made them behave the way they do. And so I kind of wanted to look at that as well. And in terms of other kids and going to school, Harry grew up in a very sort of in her own bubble because she was not around a lot of kids. She was around a lot of adults. And this is sort of her first foray into, you know, sort of normal kid life. And she is very overtaken by that in good and bad ways. To your point, you know, sometimes it's good to let them find these things out in the outside world, but sometimes these things can be sort of bullying as well. And I think that's an issue that I deal with in the book. Harry being brought along into these groups or is she being bullied along? You know, that's something to to sort of look for. Harry is an original. She is so fun to read. And your novel takes off of a scene introducing Mrs. Clecklesworth, which I just, I laughed out loud when I was reading that scene. It was really good. Do you have experience raising chickens? That's so funny because no one has asked me that before and no one has given me the opportunity to tell this story, which I am now going to tell exclusively on the podcast. My next door neighbors raise chickens and I live in a nice suburban town, not a farm. Let's put it that way. She raised chickens and she free ranged them so that they could, you know, they were healthier and happier and whatever. Here's the problem. I have two dogs and their retrievers. And this is years and years ago. This isn't recent, but every once in a while, one of her chickens would pop over my fence. I'm a real animal lover. I don't know if you read my bio, you see that I'm a Dr. Doolittle wannabe. Like all I want in life is to be able to talk to animals. So that stuck with me. You know, I watched the chicken raising from afar. I never had my own chickens, but I had my own dogs. I read that your parents were very artsy, like Jenny, your main character. How did that foster your creativity? Well, we were always doing something creative. There was nothing else to do. I mean, not that there was nothing else to do. There was no other way of of growing up. So I wrote plays and put them on in the backyard. And of course, because I was the oldest, I was the director and the playwright and the casting director. The star. And the star. Right. There was a period of time when I was obsessed with marionettes. So I had everybody make puppets and we put on puppet shows. We lived on a river. And so we went down to the riverbank and we would dig clay out of the bank of the river. I don't know if it was real clay. It might've just been mud, but you know, whatever. And we would make little pots out of them. We were always writing stories. It wasn't that it was something I was forced to do. We were all doing it. We never thought twice about anything else. Find a piece of odd looking wood in the woods, a branch that looked like an old man. And you take a knife and start carving it into more of an old man. So it was just, you know, it was a lot of what we just did. We were not sporty. There was no one sporty in my family. And that was before cable (laughs) and a lot of good TV. So that's what we did. You've also mentioned that you have dyslexia. 
Yeah. But you've worked as an advertising copywriter and now as an author. So it certainly doesn't seem to keep you from succeeding. So my dyslexia was mild. And I have to say that I have a brother who had much more severe dyslexia. And when I was diagnosed, there really wasn't anything that anyone did about it. Oh, you're dyslexic and schools didn't have any special programs and you sort of had to keep up. I sort of made it through school. One of the biggest parts of my dyslexia was reading comprehension. I really struggled with reading. And so I missed a lot of the great books that you all read. I read them, but I didn't understand them or they didn't stick with me or whatever. And it really, in my early twenties, when I realized that I was just sort of barely hanging on to that kind of stuff, I really just had to kind of knuckle down and sort of force myself to focus. And I think a lot of it was slowing down, forcing myself to focus. I also have an auditory learning disability, which I did not know I had because when I was diagnosed, nobody told me because again, you know, why should they tell you? Which is, you know, part of the reason why I couldn't remember things that were told to me. I had to write them down. So I think all of that stuff, I just kind of learned to work around really in a focused way. And I have to say my brother, who was much more dyslexic than I was, is a brilliant writer. And he writes for a living and can't speak for everybody with dyslexia. But I do think that like there are some elements of dyslexia that you can really work on yourself and get yourself out of. So that's what I ended up doing. Very cool. I've read that you lived in a Frank Lloyd Wright house and learning about him has always been kind of one of my guilty pleasures. What would no one guess about living in a home designed by Frank Lloyd Wright? It's dangerous. And I'll tell you why. Because a couple of reasons. The house is made out of cement, wood, and glass. And he builds in a lot of his furniture and a lot of his pieces into the wall cabinetry, bookcases, and things like that. And in one particular case, I can tell you that a bedroom that I was in, there was a bookcase that he had attached to the wall and the edge of the bookcase, the corner of the bookcase came out exactly where my nine-year-old head was. So I, I could walk into that room and if I wasn't careful, I would hit my head on the wall. That was one way it was dangerous. Another way it was dangerous was Our entire first floor was poured cement. It was painted over. It might have been before lead paint was a thing, but the paint would peel. I would sit there and just peel it off the ground. I mean, I didn't eat it. I'm not saying I ate it, but (laughs) we're peeling potentially lead paint off the ground. I'll tell you something unique to this particular house that was a really interesting story is that we were on a river bank. The Frank Lloyd Wright house was the one on the river bank and there was a hurricane and the river flooded and flooded our house, five feet of water. So the whole back of our house was glass. And some neighbor got a rowboat and we rowed around to the back of the house and we could see through the glass, all of our furniture floating around in the house. That caused a lot of damage, but that was unique to that particular Frank Lloyd Wright house that he built it on a river. There are a lot of Frank Lloyd Wright houses, but there aren't that many Frank Lloyd Wright houses. How did your family end up living in one? I have no idea. I was a little kid. My dad found it and it was very appealing to them because of their artist backgrounds. My dad was a writer. My mom was a potter. And I think that they just thought it was super unique and they must've just come along at the right time when it was being sold. And it was also interesting because it was in a tiny little town called Millstone, New Jersey, which is still there. There are 400 families in the town, one traffic light and no school system. Harkening back to me being the girl who always was trying to break into the new social circles, 
we got bused almost every year, a different town that could fit us into their grade. So I must have gone to a school in four different towns while I lived in that house. But it was just such a unique thing because it was a tiny old town with really old homes and some farms and some farmhouses and this river and this like incredible glass and mahogany Frank Lloyd Wright house. So weird. And the thing for me is as an adult, it is really cool. And look at those pictures. But as a kid, my best friend from school lived in a normal house, you know, like a square house with a roof, you know, a, a roof that, you know, went like that. And I couldn't, I live in a house like that. I just felt, you know, I didn't want to feel, you know, special or unique. You know, this was a young kid. You don't, you don't really want that. At least in our house, there was no basement. So when, you know, the floods came, they just came straight through the whole first floor. He had a philosophy of central living. So there was a big central living space and then very small bedrooms tucked away, either upstairs, there was one in the back of the house. So when the flood came, it just, you know, wiped out the whole central living area. So that was really... Yeah, especially with your dad being a writer. I'm guessing that was before you saved everything on a computer. Oh, there was no computers. Yeah, so paper, yeah, gone. Yeah, wow. yeah, books, lots of books. You guys moved back in? We did eventually. There was a lot of work we had to do in order to get back in. But there was always a watermark because the walls were cement block. So there was always a watermark from then on. And when we did move out of that house, we sold it to a couple who were architects. And so they restored it. They must have gotten rid of the watermarks and they restored some of the stuff that had been ruined. And they're the ones who, I don't know, sold it, donated it to this place now in Alabama. And the house was literally picked up and moved to Alabama. So it's on the grounds of this uh, museum now. That's funny how they moved down the road. I don't know. I mean, it was a house. I mean, I don't know how they, yeah. When did you know you couldn't wait one more day to sit down and write your first novel? So I wrote my first novel 12 years ago. I started writing fiction at 50. I got a late start. And now everybody can do the math and figure out how old I am. I took a little course that was called Just Write. That was like a community school class Uh uh, in a church, in a classroom in a church. And it was really just to get you to the point where you just put words on a piece of paper. Because that's scary. You know, when we all start, we're all terrified of that. And that was great. And then from there, I was invited into a short story workshop by the same teacher. And when I got a little confidence with the short stories, I wrote my first novel, which was a great idea. I still love it. Someday I want to rewrite it, but it was pretty badly written. So it was not Welcome to the Neighborhood. It was not Welcome to the Neighborhood. Welcome to the Neighborhood is actually my fourth manuscript. And is that the one you queried? Well, I queried all the books, actually. Is that the one you queried successfully? This is the one I queried successfully. Yes. Yes. So how did that go? So I had racked up probably about 200 rejections for the other manuscripts and it was quit or just, you know, put your head down and don't look where you're going and just go. That's kind of my mantra in life anyway, is be brave and don't give up and keep going. Fall down nine times, get up 10. That's one of my big sayings that I love and say often. I am friendly with a, an author named Ann Garvin. And a couple of years ago, Ann was running with a partner of hers, was running a workshop called The Fifth Semester. And I had these three other manuscripts that really didn't go anywhere. And Ann said, why don't you come and do The Fifth Semester with us? And, you know, maybe we can see where you're going wrong. And 
I showed up with one chapter and I presented the chapter and Anne and her partner said, this is your book. And I'm still not 100% sure why this was the book and not the other ones. I completed the book. I worked on it for a while. So part of the fifth semester is that the last night of the fifth semester, you do a cocktail hour with agents. We were in New York City at the time, and we went over to Folio Literary, and we met a couple of agents there, and we got to pitch our work. We had, you know, you know, you had 30 seconds, you got to do your paragraph, and that was it. And if they were interested in your book, they would tell Anne, and Anne would tell you, so not to make other people feel badly. And I pitched my book, and one of the agents there said, MomCom? because I had just come up with that because I thought I was the genius who invented MomCom. And she said, wow, you you had me at MomCom. But Anne never said she wants to see your book. So I was like, oh, okay, well, she likes MomCom, but not the book. And so I kept writing and I kept writing and I kept writing. And finally, I finished the book and I decided to send it to her anyway. And she basically was like, I've been waiting for this book. So nice. um, it's Rachel Ekstrom that had mm-hmm. polio. And then it took Rachel a while to read it, which is sort of very typical. You know, they've got yeah. so much on their plate. And now that I see the other side of what they're doing, you know, they're not reading from their slush pile, you know, day and night. She gave me a call and she said that she would be partnering with another agent at Folio, that sometimes that's the way they, they handle it. And so she and Erin uh, Numata. I know Erin. Yeah. Very sweet. Yeah. And so they became my agents and we worked on a couple of rounds of revisions of this book for, I want to say six months. We worked on it all during the pandemic, all during lockdown. You know, I had nothing else to do but revise my book. And then they put it on submission and it only took about three months to get nice. the offer from Sourcebooks, which I thought was a, I mean, to me, that sounded great knowing how long things take these days mm-hmm. or all in publishing. So, well, especially in light of the pandemic, because not a lot was moving during the pandemic. People that had book deals, they got postponed and some people's got canceled and, you know, or their editors left. And so that's really cool that that happened during that time. That's awesome. Yeah. What is your process? So I am a very anxious writer. And if I'm not writing, I'm anxious that I'm not writing. And if I'm writing, I'm anxious because I'm not writing enough. You know, I think I'm not the only person like this. You know, they say it right into the choir. Yeah, exactly. A writer never goes on vacation. They're either writing or thinking about writing, you know, that kind of thing. So I actually use the story structure method that I learned at the fifth semester. You know, I start with a premise and an idea and some characters, and I kind of work on filling out this graphic that, you know, that just helps me kind of get organized. And then I do this thing that I kind of call like random scene cards, where I take index cards, a big pile of index cards, and every single scene I could think of might want to come into my book in no particular order and not even with a ton of meaning. I just write them down. I could have a stack of 50 of them. Scene where they meet in the supermarket and the lady is rude to her. A scene where she's in a bathtub and she slips and hits her head, whatever. And then I lay them all out on my dining room table and try to put them in some kind of order to see if they make sense. And then I sort of match them up with my graphic organizer, which has inciting incident, pinch points, midpoint reversal, darkest before the dawn, denouement, you know, final battle, blah, blah, blah. Those were not necessarily in order. And I kind of just, you know, do this. My hands are waving in the air for those of you. <laughs> and I, I just try to make sense of them. 
and then I can start writing. I have this weird habit where I give myself a sticker for every day that I write. I have a paper planner like you do, and I put a sticker in it and it really keeps me going because for some reason, I want that sticker really badly. And even if I'm the one who gives out the sticker so I could cheat and let myself have one, I just really want to accomplish the sticker. So I do write quite a bit just to get my little sticker. I have a giant stack of stickers that I love and I've got a paper planner that I put them in. And I generally have word count goals. I just turned in a book too. And that book was written on a deadline. And so I I sort of divvied up my word count for that book. How many words a day? For the book I just turned in, I did about an average of about a thousand words a day. But I wrote like five to seven days a week. I generally write every day unless my brain just feels like it's going to explode and I can't deal with it. (laughs) For Welcome to the Neighborhood, you know, I really wasn't on any kind of deadline. So I kind of wrote, it could have been, I I got a sticker for writing 10 words on that book, you know, 10 to whatever. I didn't have the luxury of doing that this time. So I was on a different kind of deadline that I've never experienced before. What is next for you? Well, I just handed in the book two. I have a two book contract and I just handed in book two. I just got my edit letter back two days ago and I have a phone call with my editor tomorrow And so I am about to dive into revisions and that's what I'm doing. And that book is coming out August, 2023. Are they connected in any way? It's all mom-com, which is Mm -hmm. my, my thing. It's women's fiction with romantic elements. So it's a very different kind of romance than what you see in Welcome to the Neighborhood because Welcome to the Neighborhood is sort of like a newlywed honeymoon still in the honeymoon period romance up to a point, as you know, because you read it. This one is a little bit more of a, not a traditional romance book, but a little more traditional romance, sort of a, a new thing. Again, it's about a mother and a daughter relationship, different mother, different daughter, different environment, still in an upscale neighborhood where the mother doesn't really 100% fit in. I look forward to that. What are you reading now? Well, I just finished See Jane Snap. Oh gosh, Bethany Crandall. Oh my God. So it's funny because it's basically a a mom-com. A mom-com, yes, yes. In the the most calm of mom-com meanings. It was hysterical and so much physical comedy and such a sweet ending. Really loved it. I want to call Beth and ask her if she'll be my new best friend. I can't look at oranges in the supermarket anymore without no, no. thinking of Bethany. How often did you want to do it? You know, I once when I was in a really bad mood and I'm one of those people that doesn't want anybody to be mad at me. I don't break any rules. You know, I try to be super considerate, but I was in a bad mood in a supermarket once and I was packing my groceries into my bag after I checked out and paid and everything. And this woman started sending her groceries down and they were rolling down into mine and I snapped at her. And she was like, you are the nastiest woman. And it just, I couldn't stop thinking about it. I mean, first of all, me, the nastiest oranges. Yeah. I mean, I wish I had one, but so I could relate to that book so much. It was so great. And now I'm reading Good Egg. I'm only, you know, 50 or so pages in, but it seems to be a a bit of a quirky character type, you know, sort of one who doesn't really fit in. And I love those kind of books. If you enjoyed CJ and Snap, Leah Geller's last one, Truth and Other Hidden Things about a mom. I think you'd enjoy that one. What do you wish you had known before you began writing fiction? How long everything takes and how patient you need to be. Because I think when you don't realize that you have a tendency to number one, get demoralized and frustrated and to take it personally. Like I was saying earlier about, you know, waiting for 
my agent, Rachel, to get back to me for the first time. She hates me. She hates my book. You could come up with all these reasons, but the industry moves very slowly. It moves very fast at certain times, but for the most part, things do move very slowly. So I think that that is one thing that I would like to have embraced right away. And I still probably would have complained and Until you have that book published, you feel like, is it really going to happen? Oh, yeah, totally. And how many times I swore I was quitting, like yelling at the top of my lungs, I'm quitting this. I'm never doing this again. (laughs) Four books later, later, I'm quitting. What would you tell someone considering tapping out a story for the very first time? This is the advice I have been giving a lot lately. And I really mean this. And it sounds like I'm going to give you a bumper sticker, but this is it. Be brave. Just be brave and do it. There are so many places along the way in writing where you can get scared and stop. Like I was talking about that very first class that I took where, you know, it was just learning how to put a word on paper. You become very vulnerable when you put a word on paper, even if you're writing a funny story. Scary having somebody read your work, whether it's just a really bad rough draft or beta readers, they're going to tell you what they think. And that's terrifying. All the times we think we're going to fail, we're afraid of failing. And, you know, there's the book by Susan Jeffries that's called Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. That's it. Just try to push yourself through it and try to do it at every single stage because it only hurts for a minute. But if you didn't do it, you wouldn't have it. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me and for inviting me in. This was really great. To learn more, visit lisarow.com. If you're enjoying The Writing Table, please consider leaving us a review. There are so many podcasts out there. Reviews help other listeners find us. Thanks so much for your support.